getting international. And that's really important for an Australian-based startup is to think global from the beginning. That's Darren Winterford, the founder and CEO of EdUp. This is Wild Hearts. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Wild Hearts, the podcast dedicated to sharing the stories and the lessons from the founders and operators changing the world. In this episode, the founder of EdUp, Darren Winterford, shares the lessons in discovering product market fit. This really is a product masterclass that reveals the principles of arriving at a seamless product experience, the key metrics to measure magical moments, how to position a product so it can cut through the noise and so much more. EdApp has seriously grown from strength to strength since being acquired by Safety Culture in 2020. And this episode will reveal that. Uh, It was recorded a year ago, but the content, honestly, (laughs) it'll age like fine wine. I wish I could have spent more time with him. But on that note, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. (laughs) Let's kick it off. Thank you, Darren, for joining me on Wild Hearts. No problem. Great to be here again. Even before Safety Culture acquired EdApp, the company has been on tear. It's been on a tear for Yonks. Uh, But I want to start this episode by chatting to you about the customer and product lessons you've acquired since starting EdApp. So let's set the scene at the top though. There's rarely ever a better thing in this job than listening to a founder share their vision. So what's EdApps? We really have set out to obviously disrupt workplace education. And what we learned very early on in our space was that workplace education or workplace training is fundamentally broken. If you're listening to this episode, I don't think there's many people that actively enjoy the learning or the training that they do at work. Um, Traditionally, it's been that 90-minute click, 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 you know, get through a flash file if you can remember back to those days. And even now it might be, you know, death by PowerPoint or something similar. And it's that email that sits in the inbox that you move to Friday afternoon, which becomes Monday, which becomes the following Friday before someone, you know, slaps you over the hand with a ruler and says, hey, go and get this um, bit of training done. And um, we could see that just the, the fundamentals of the industry were really broken. The inputs were these authoring tools being housed within, you know, content being housed within what's traditionally known as an LMS and uh, resulting in very, very low NPS scores. I think it's the lowest of, of any industry. Wow. And we had a look and, and could see that by democratizing that space and, and making it a highly engaging and highly intuitive and more accessible space, we could easily provide a product that, you know, for the learner could be consumed on mobile and, and much more, if you like, Twitter-like and in bite-sized chunks. And for admins and authors, a much more, I would dare I say, Canva experience in putting together the learning and providing a library of content that is modern and up-to-date that they can easily adapt. And putting that together uh, as a product, we then began to see that, you know, it stretches or the need stretches far beyond the workplace. There are those people that are, you know, unfortunately not able to be currently in employment. There are those people whose um, workplaces don't currently offer any sort of training at all. Um, and then you've got people in the developing world who, you know, post some sort of preschool or elementary school will never progress into high school and 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 after that. Mm. And so we began to look at the opportunity as being able to really change the way people learn at work, but increasingly by offering a model that would allow us to allow access to EdUp for those people in the developing world, those people currently not in employment, and effectively offer them 
the same sort of opportunities and in particularly this, the same fantastic rich library that we offer our enterprise customers to also make that available to people, if you like, as, as individuals to help them maybe go and look for employment, to help them upskill themselves. And that really became the mission of the company was, yes, let's go and change the way the world learns at work, but then let's also make sure that we make it available, not just to NGOs, but also to individuals looking to either enter the workplace or who are currently in an environment where that sort of training or education is not available to them. Mm. And we found that very quickly that resonated, not just in terms of the product doing well, in signing up some of the world's you know biggest brands and biggest workplaces but also we were able to talk to the biggest ngos and the un became a partner very very quickly and came on board to and using the platform to educate in places like you know iraq iran afghanistan sub-saharan africa and then further that's now spread into un women un aids unitar all of their their initiatives around climate change etc are all being driven out through edap to both individuals and, and other members. So it's one of those products where we could see the vision, you know, very, very quickly and we're able to see it come to life in, in some of the world's largest, both, you know, enterprises, but also NGOs. That's really actually, it's quite remarkable. And what I'm curious about, and perhaps this is my bias, is like, mm-hmm. because you've already touched on it in what you've just described in the vision, how it's different, how it's unique what the status quo was in LMS. Yeah. Um, but did you have to go through that exercise of questioning your thinking to really cut through and arrive at that clarity of thought? We could see that it was the economics of the product and the industry that was broken. Once you understand the fundamentals, we could see why we could we could make a difference. Traditionally, you have learning agencies or training companies that traditionally get briefed by an employer to put together some content. That content then needs to be disseminated amongst a wide audience. You know, the economics plays out that essentially companies and training organisations will try and produce rather generic courseware that they can then sell, get the cost down and, and get and sell to as many companies as they can. To do that, they have to appeal to the lowest common denominator, which means that they make very, very generic courseware and try and sell it to a really wide audience. Mm. What that does is it, it is it just turns all of those learners and those people being trained off because they start seeing, you know, generic courseware that doesn't appeal to them. And there's that famous saying, when you're trying to appeal to everyone, you'll appeal to no one. Mm. And that's exactly what the learning environment looked like. And so that dynamic of an agency that tries to make generic content, it's that economic model that, that's the problem. And what we could see was that Everybody was either making a, you know, a learning management system which would accept that content and be able to play it. So, again, being very neutral. And being very neutral, again, meant they had to appeal to the lowest common denominator. There was nothing, there was no one in that industry able to push anything forward because all they were there to do was to receive this incoming training from, if you like, a, a number of agencies around the world or from these various authoring tools that existed. And so we were the, one of the first to market with a combined authoring and LMS experience mm. that would then enable that learning to be produced in a way that would be very specific to our platform. And because we knew we wanted to target mobile devices, we were very confident that we would be one of the only organisations globally that would be able to get learning to be fully engaging, to use gamification, to use everything we know about consumer behavior on a mobile device, like answering notifications, et cetera, et cetera, to get that to work in the corporate environment. And by putting that together, 
we knew we were we were very different to what else was out there and we knew that it was going to be a struggle to try and displace some of this other training material and, and some of these training agencies around the world. But by providing a world-class library that they could simply drag into their account and then edit, that meant that they could take what might be considered traditionally generic courseware, edit it, make it relevant for their audience, and then deploy it at a time or within time that would make its cost effectiveness, you know, really, really challenge what's currently on the market, but also deliver it with much higher relevance. Once we realized that that was going to be possible, we knew that we would have great impact. Yeah, I'm obsessed with that. And you mentioned bite-sized content mm-hmm. like Twitter yeah. and how you've sort of managed to capture that education when people are working. Mm-hmm. How did you think about creating that magical customer experience, especially at the beginning and anything on sort of removing friction or thinking about those like magic moments, aha moments, et cetera? Yeah. Well, I guess one of our first mantras was that no one in this particular industry was thinking customer first. And in that way, in, in our eyes, that's really the learner. Everyone, again, it was all about making the economics work, whether we could simply upload this course and then essentially beat everyone over the head until they do it. The admin gets, you know, receives back, yes, okay, the whole cohort I've been trying to train has now done it. Therefore, that box is ticked and they can move on with their role. For us, we really wanted to start with and put the learner experience at the core so that learners were saying back to their um, HR or people colleagues, this is amazing. This is how we want to learn. This is exactly the method by which we want to be trained and therefore become hungry for more content and be able to say, look, there is more to my role and other roles that I would like to explore through this platform. And so really the first aha moment comes um, the first time a learner engages with our product and it, it, it again will feel much more consumer grade and much more like something they expect um, in, in, their, in their life outside of work than just, you know, what they would typically expect in an enterprise application. So that's one of the first. The other is for, you know, a really obsess over the admin or the author that's putting together this content and, Honestly, um, the tools that are currently or that were being used to put together training were, um, you know, I would say archaic at best. And so for us to be able to even start talking about concepts of, you know, drag and drop and beautiful creative canvases, I think was, was very new. And that again, and that's an obsession that we still have, still is that aha moment for admins the first time that they explore the product wow, this is, this is the area in which I can work every day. This is a very different feeling to working on, you know, again, some sort of 1990s or early mm-hmm. 2000s training authoring tool. Mm. The other thing that we obsessed on was the actual content we were going to provide as the base level for them to be able to start putting material out to their teams. And so the, the direction we've taken was to look for content providers rather than it being just again a generic training company that is spouting out you know very traditional frameworks we went to some of the people around the world who were the best in their field in that particular area so recently you know leadership courses are you know often in demand at lots of companies particularly for young leaders and so we went and talked to John Valantham who was one of the cave divers that rescued the 13 children in Thailand 
And he put together a course. We flew to Bristol and filmed him actually in a sort of cave setting. Wow. And he put together a course for us, a mixture of video and text on leading under pressure and making decisions and making critical decisions. And of course, he's done that with the highest possible stakes being, you know, 13 lives in his hands and, and the, some of the decisions he had to make and how that translates to the workplace. Now, if you're an admin of training material and you come across a course like that, that you're able to roll out absolutely free of charge and take and then be able to amend and put your own spin on it, that is real engaging learning content that we know just does not exist out there in, in any content library. And so, you know, that approach for content has also really cut through. And that's, again, one of those aha moments we use. Next month, we'll come out with, you know, again, diversity inclusion is a, a really, really important topic at the moment that we need to make sure that all workplaces um, are familiar with and, and engaging with. And again, rather than going back to the textbook and, and let's have a look at what we need to educate on and how we're going to structure a diversity course, we went and asked an, an expert. And so we went and grabbed Karamo Brown from Queer Eye from The Straight Guy. People that watch Netflix and co would, would know that. Mm -hmm. And again, we had Karamo, who feels very passionate about diversity inclusion, obviously, put together a course on what you should think about when it comes to diversity and inclusion in the workplace and how to apply it. And very, very practical. And again, delivering content of that nature out to your teams. And, you know, when we talk about massive teams, we've got some teams in the United States, it might be up to 24,000 learners are being trained across an organisation. It has huge impact. I mean, they were talking about training that used to be, you know, that element or that particular task that was done on a Friday afternoon. All of a sudden, you've got Karamo Brown posters around a workplace encouraging people to, hey, take a look at our diversity and inclusion course, which, by the way, because we have this fantastic authoring tool that's easy to use, also has a video from the CEO endorsing this particular policy. So you can see how we can totally transform a workplace with, you know, what other people might consider to be a, a very simple training platform. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, I love how you use the word obsession before starting the response to like each of the metrics that you're tracking and you care about. Mm -hmm. Before anyone can kind of arrive at like that clarity of thought on those metrics, oftentimes people like this is where the journey isn't linear and finding customers that love your product is a really tough one. So I was curious if I can take you back, what were some of the, the mistakes or lessons or learnings along your journey to finding customers that obsessed over EdUp? I think in terms of identifying customers, I think the most important balance, and, and you can apply it to almost any product, is looking for those customers that are going to be able to take your product with both hands and be able to become advocates for it within an organization to, to enable you when you're talking about a training product, it tends to be all org. So you're not trying to sell a piece of SEO software. You're not trying to sell you know, a, a piece of software that might just appeal to one department. You're talking about in this stack, the ed tech or HR stack, you're talking about organization wide. So we knew we had to find advocates that were passionate about education within an organization because it was going to take some passion to be able to effectively within a reasonable sales cycle be able to convince an organization to not only buy but then to execute and because you need to be able to get all org adoption to make sure then that the, the tool becomes very useful they can then unpack all its features they can put together those that brilliant bit of courseware they can grab our library they can have learners engage get those 
wow moments with with learners and teams and then make sure that we're going to be a platform that stays within an organization hopefully for a very very long time so finding those passionate advocates was the first thing how did you do like as as you're sort of talking i'm thinking through like mm-hmm. there is so many use cases so many learnings how did you sort of narrow your focus to find that passionate person inside the organization yeah you've you've got to you've got to in the early parts of the the sales process identify through not only what they will will talk to your sales or success team about, but also when you have a freemium product, which EdUp is, you can also use the behavior, the way that they're using your product to then inform how much focus you think you should be putting on that particular customer as to whether they're going to have some success in being able to get widespread company adoption. It's very clear those people that are looking around and let's say, you know, kicking the tires and having a bit of a look versus someone that almost instantly becomes a fan as much of a user. Those people that are on, you know, we've got a number of metrics that feed into our CRM, whether they're on live chat, how many courses they've authored, the types of of topics that they're talking about that they want to author. All of those things we will add in as traditionally they're called lead scoring metrics that you can start to say, look, we think we're a real chance with this particular organization. And if there's some time that's going to be taken by our product team with this particular customer, then that's okay because we think this one is, you know, a very large opportunity. And I think that everyone, as I was saying, in, in product faces that. It's that choice of do we go after those customers that can will grab your product, not have a great deal of input into a product roadmap and who's happy with what they've got and, you know, they'll take it and run with it. Or especially when it comes to the enterprise side, those customers that have very, very large opportunity, but will also need some, um, the words is, is not custom requirements, but those particular customers that might end up having a slight impact on your roadmap, maybe in terms of timing. Um, in other words, there may be a feature that leans more towards enterprise that needs to be built before another, that say a self-service customer or a smaller org, for example, wouldn't require and it's that balance, I think, that is is tricky for everyone. And I don't think everyone gets it perfectly right. And almost every founder would say, oh, I probably wouldn't have gone that direction. I would have done, you know, a little bit less of some large enterprise features. But I, I think that's the that's the crucial balance is just making sure that you're able to take the large opportunities that come along that can be really fundamental. And I remember for our organization, we had the um, Mercedes-Benz in the US were a very big customer of ours. And I, I personally like when you have very large teams presenting you their problems because I think it gets your product team very focused on what doesn't work for organizations of that size. And so it does really focus you on, okay, this is the direct problem we need to be solved. And as long as you're convinced that that is going to be the same problem that other organizations of that size are going to encounter, then it's it's, it's money and time well spent. But balancing those kinds of requests versus you know, you might want to be focusing, for example, more on your onboarding flow or other elements that might help more of a self-service customer. That's then the balance that you've just got to get right. Mm, I love that. And what's another mistake or learning that you had to go through? When we began to scale, it can become easy to start thinking about or you become enamored by the CVs of more experienced senior people. And I think we went from an organization that put a lot of belief in youth and a lot of belief in, I would say, recent grads, whether that be engineering or elsewhere, 
and people that were super passionate but inexperienced. When we made that initial move into some, I would say, more experienced people that came from impressive, you know, CV backgrounds and, you know, well, this, this, this person here might be from Google or Amazon or whatever the case may be, and, wow, they're really going to be able to accelerate our path. Sometimes I think we, number one, we probably went on that journey too early. But number two, I would just caution against sometimes in large organisations, you know, even senior people can be shielded from fast-paced decision-making. They can be shielded from some of the work that you will require and that needs to be done fast in that sort of agile environment. And whilst you might imagine that coming from, you know, a, a blue-chip company that they will bring some of that expertise, oftentimes I found that it probably looking back wasn't the correct way to go and there probably was more time to be spent with more inexperienced but highly passionate culture adding you know younger adults that might not have the experience but we're bringing a lot more to the table than you know a cv yeah there's always this like people risk tension internally we call it at least at a founder level we want to find the hungry not the proven mm. and when you're hiring your first 10 20 people there is always that tension of i just need to get this done yeah but it's a really hard trade off do you think you could have gotten to where you were if you sort of lent towards that experienced proven side versus the, the hungry side? You know, I really, I really don't think so. I, I reflected, we've got a major milestone coming up and I was thinking about the notes and what I was going to talk about with the team. And something I realized that we did very well early was getting international. And that's really important for an Australian-based startup is to, is to think global from the beginning. And when I think back to what we did in, you know, sending fresh graduates to one to New York and one to London to go and establish an office there. And when I say an office, you know, it was even sort of predated WeWork, but that's literally what it was. It was wow. when you think about, you know, if you worked for the likes of a Mars or a Coke or a, you know, large farmer and it's move mum, dad, the family, pay for private education, rent. I think we were like, here's a plane ticket. Good luck. And what we achieved from that was just so, so immense. And when I reflect back that I think at the moment there are five people within the organisation who would all still be under or around 30 years of age that have done two years or more overseas with the company. And for most of them, EDAP would have been their first ever uh, real career. So there's two engineers, one sales, one success, actually two success who have all gone either London, New York, or been brought here to Sydney, um, who have all come from and, and been bred, if you like, within EDAP and then gone overseas to take our DNA into those other territories and get our success and our mission-based DNA established in those particular beachheads, which is now proven, you know, absolutely priceless for us. Probably 60 or 70% of our customer base is obviously outside of Australia. Wow. And that was all done by, I would say, recent graduates at the time who all would have been under 25. Wow. And who, by the way, are all still with the company. So when you think about that, you know, they've not just created, if you like, as I say, our, our beachheads overseas, but they've also brought a great deal culturally the people that are hungry versus proven, what they bring, they bring culture. And I, and I think that's also something that is super, super important. And obviously we have a mission-based culture. We are 
all working to try and improve education, not just within the workplace, but elsewhere, as I described, those hungry and not the proven, they, they don't want to go back to their, you know, sit on the couch and watch Netflix of an evening. You know, they're the ones that are out there still talking about challenges, still talking about how they can overcome things with their teams, whether it's, you know, over a beer after work or, or you know, even on a weekend when they're hanging out together. So I do think that's a really important thing. To continue that, mm-hmm. you mentioned before the interview that you didn't have a uh, a technical background and one of the important hires you needed to make at the beginning was an engineer who could sort of help you realize EdApp's vision. Mm-hmm. Was this hire an or statement, like hungry or the proven, or was it an and statement where you really needed both? And how did you think about hiring that first engineer? I'd love to sort of peel back the trade-offs and decisions you had to make. Yeah, I was very lucky because my first foray into tech was owning a mobile development agency here in Manly in Sydney. And so I got to, by employing engineers that were going to work on a specific customer problem, build an app or a solution for them and then move on much more project focused. I got to see those types of engineers that could deliver projects on time, that could think rationally, that were able to balance the sort of perfect solution, which almost all engineers would like to deliver, and the pragmatic or practical. And that experience really helped me hone in on the types of engineers that I think or that I thought and still do were important for startups. And and that is those engineers that are comfortable that once they understand the vision, once they understand the strategy, are capable of making great decisions on the fly and, and, and during a sprint And I think, again, there are two types of engineers I sometimes think about. One type of engineer is trying to put together perfect code and are very proud of the fact, as they should be, that they can be very efficient or make some very elegant code, let's say, perform a function. And that's something that they hold in high regard. You've got other types of engineers, though, that are really interested in what they are actually trying to do, less about how they actually do it, whilst of course they want to do it the best way they possibly can, what they're interested in is actually solving the problem. And if you're able to find people in product and engineering like that, that are interested in solving that problem and are happy to make decisions along the way at speed that are then able to deliver on that vision, then that is that type of engineer that is really necessary in a fast moving startup because that engineer is afraid to make decisions because they don't know exactly the direction that everything is going to slow down because they're continuously coming back to whether it be, you know, the founder in the early days or even heads of engineering as you begin to scale, everything is going to slow down because there's this constant checking in. And that usually is a reflection that, you know, that engineer doesn't has either doesn't feel empowered enough or hasn't been told the direction or the vision for the product that they're working on. And so for me, that decision-making, that that person that is able to eloquently talk about the vision and, and what they're working on, really understand what it is and the problem they're trying to solve, that is a, a really important hire to make. I love that so much. I'm curious, why did you decide to join the Safety Culture family instead of raising venture capital? It was a really interesting time. At the time, EdUp was a was really a side project of our agency. And I sort of switched from being an agency that was making, you know, dozens of apps, if you like, every quarter and sort of being motivated, I guess, in, in those days by, by profit to then beginning to say, okay, well, for every 
um, every dollar we make, let's see if we can employ an engineer on, let's say, the other side of the room who will be working on a product for ourselves to, to become much more product-oriented. And that's where EDAP was born, out of that group that was, you know, basically being their wages were being paid by the people on the other side of the room. And EDAP was a side project, but was gathering a fair bit of momentum. And, and we'd managed to already deploy into some really large enterprise in the US and, and in Europe. And it looked like being, you know, a fantastic product. And we were, you know, becoming quite passionate about it. And naturally, we were approached by various VCs, predominantly North American, who were very interested in investing. And I probably would have taken that route had it not been that I was visited by the founder of iAuditor, who came to me via a recommendation from Apple, because at the time we had, a, and we still do have a great relationship with Apple, and they'd recommended I talked to Luke because Luke was interested in training. And when Luke arrived in my office, he was this, you know, young guy from Townsville. He mentioned he was working on this product called iAuditor, which I hadn't heard of, and, but he was very interested in training. And I was lucky in, in that moment that I, I shared probably a little bit more than I normally would about the vision I had for, for workplace learning. And he said, look, that, that's, you know, this is exactly, you know, our beliefs are exactly aligned. This is exactly what um, I've been thinking. Listen, if there's anything I can ever do to help, then, you know, please give me a call. And really that was it. And I continued to talk to various VCs and again, predominantly in North America. And one of the things that I was noticing was there was, I was a little bit concerned about how much time I was going to have to really work on the product and make sure the product had that feeling of that, that, that consumer grade and that learner experience that I was looking for before we were really going to have some impact. And as you mentioned, it's such a crowded space, the LMS market. And I, I really thought that I, we needed a little bit of time to be able to get all the elements right. And then in a, in a subsequent conversation with Luke, he mentioned that, look, you know, he was currently funded by Blackbird and he introduced me to Rick and Rick came by the office and we, we showed him what we were up to. And one thing became pretty clear, which was that if we were to raise within and become a part of eventually the safety culture group, we were going to have that opportunity to really build out a product that we were proud of. And some of the financial pressures that were bound to come from raising, particularly out of North America, where in pitch decks we were being asked, you know, how long till profitability, you know, what's the gross margin, uh, you know, can you please talk to us about the structure of your enterprise sales team, was a very different conversation to the one we were having with Luke and Safety Culture and Rick, which was, look, if you were to embed part of a larger group with Safety Culture, you would not only have access to their customers, which is, you know, obviously fantastic. And at that time, it was about 45,000 teams using iAuditor. But also, you'll have the time, you'll, have, you'll be given that license to be able to make sure that the product is going to be something that the teams are going to be enormously proud of and not thinking about, okay, we need to start, you know, ramping enterprise sales. We need to start selling this product a little bit potentially before it's time. We certainly would have, wouldn't have been able to afford the freemium model, which was the model we went for. And the freemium model is honestly what has unlocked our ability to be able to go and talk to people in the developing world, go and help, you know, migrants coming into North America and Australia, going to places like the Dominican Republic and taking our app there and educating against human slavery, 
none of that would have happened. The UN partnership wouldn't have happened because we simply wouldn't have been able to afford to. Mm. And so I, I do think that that was very key for me was that when we realised that Luke and Safety Culture and Rick were, were providing that area for us to really think product first, that was what really made it a very clear path. And to be honest with you, I also went to the team and said, look, we have multiple term sheets here from US companies and some of them you know, are presenting valuations that are far beyond our expectations. However, you know, we have the opportunity to go and join and be part of something bigger and, and solve a much larger problem together with a lot more, I guess, advisors, having people like, you know, Rick and Luke to talk to, but increasingly their board, you know, Craig Tiley from Tennis Australia, Robin Denham from Tesla. These are some fantastic people that you get access to that we simply wouldn't have had if we'd taken the money from, from a VC and then spent, honestly, probably a week, a month just working on your update deck for them. You know, I can't remember the last update deck I produced here at Safety Culture. So, you know. <laughs> yes, that can be a pain. Well, that, that was honestly incredible. Thank you so much for your time. That was epic. No worries. Thanks, Mason. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. If you left with more energy than when you started, we'd be super grateful if you liked subscribe left a review even shared it with a friend in case you want to keep in touch share feedback or even a pitch deck i'll leave my blink card in the show notes for you to get in touch thank you so much for listening once again and we'll see you in a couple of weeks godspeed